Well, good morning. My name is Brian Fannin. I do serve as the small groups pastor here at Grace Fellowship. And uh, I am uh, thrilled that you're here. And I'm thrilled to uh, pick up in Luke chapter 15 as a continuation of last week. We have been in a series of messages about church matters. And the emphasis, where is that emphasis? Is it church matters or uh, church matters or, you know, nobody knows. Well, here's the reality. It's all and then some. And the reality uh, that we face today as believers is that uh, if you've been a part of a church for any amount of time, you find that uh, there are ups and downs in your own personal life and then also in the life of the church. You know, you can have decisions made by politicians and judges and just absolutely kind of set you on your heels. You don't quite know what's going on, not understanding. And what does this mean? So as believers and as those who claim Christ, I'd like to uh, uh, spend some time with you today in Luke chapter 15 and talk about the brother that's never talked about. So if you know the story um, of all that happens in Luke 15, the first part of the story is the part that everybody knows. It's the part of this younger brother who basically looks at his dad and says, I'd like to get my inheritance now. And he heads out and he spends it on whatever he wants to. And he basically uh, wastes it and brings shame to his family, shame on his life, uh, maybe even disease. You know, it's just, it's just a messed up situation. But he comes to his senses and he comes home. And if you were here last week, you know that the father greets him not with a paddle and a belt, but with open arms and a robe, the best robe, and a ring and shoes and love and acceptance and an all-out party. And it stands us on our head. We don't quite know what to do with it. Um, Especially the religious crowd that was there that day. They didn't know what to do with this. So I've got your Bible. Let's just look at what what happens in the story. Luke chapter 15, we're going to pick up again, the focus is on this other brother, the older brother. First look at Luke 15 verses 1 and 2, it sets the stage with what's going on. The Bible says tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And that's phraseology basically means that Jesus was hanging out with all sorts of people, people you would not expect him to. He's showing up watching NFL on Sunday. You know what? Jesus is in the bean dip. He's eating the wings. He's hanging. Okay. That's what he's doing. That's what he does. Now, some of you take a fit. We, we, we so divorce the scripture from real life that we miss the reality is that Jesus would be the one that would show up at your door. He'd eat your food. He'd drink your drink. He might even be able to tell you, since he's the master of all things, how to improve the recipes, if you ask him. But the Bible also says in verse 2, Pharisees and scribes, look at this word, in the ESV it says, grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. 
And then the story picks up. Only place it occurs, doesn't occur in Matthew, Mark, or John, only in Luke, is the story of these lost things, what happens in heaven, what God does when sinners repent. But then there is this brother, this other brother, this older brother, who's often overlooked, that comes um, in the scene. Verse 25, now his older son was in the field and he came and he drew near the house and he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and he asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and he refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him. But he said to his father, look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, actually he doesn't say it like that. If you look in the Greek, he uses a word like this, my boy. Son, you're always with me, and all that's mine is yours. It's fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You and I hear this story. It creates certain emotions depending on where you are. In fact, there are people in different places in life right now. There are people who are in desperately hard situations right now, hurting, suffering. You've gotten news. You're dealing with conflict, sickness, pain, stress on your budget. And so you hear things that somebody else in the room does not necessarily hear. And words and language and pictures matter to us. Words like this, if you're over 50 and I say sick, you know, it evokes something. But if you're 15 and I say, that is sick, that's a completely different matter entirely. Sick is cool. And even a 50-year-old can, I'm not quite got it down. I don't use the right tone, but nevertheless. See, these are, these are words and words become labels and we use them and we throw them around and none of us like to be labeled. Nobody, I don't know anybody, it likes to be called a redneck, a radical, a racist, a liberal. Nobody likes to be called a fundamentalist. But these are words that we flip around, we commonly use, and they're not welcome. Especially when they're directed at us. And when we hear the word Pharisee, wow, if you know anything about church, if you don't, don't worry about it. Pharisee basically means this. This is the religious in crowd who knows it all, thinks it all, understands, they think they understand it all. And they're the quick ones to tell you exactly how things are. These are the guys that were the guardians of religion. But faithful Pharisee, and what does it have to do with church matters? Faithful Pharisee. Well, you may say, well, I'm not a Pharisee. You might be faithful. But labels become divisive. And Pastor Ken this week told me, so you've got to be careful. He said, you know... The moment you say Pharisee, there's going to be a whole bunch of people in the room that tune you out. They don't see themselves as Pharisees. And maybe you're not. 
So we're going to take a little test, a little heart quiz. I'm not going to read you all 10 of these, but we're going to look at a few of them together. And let's just, yes or no, at first glance, don't analyze it. If you're not quite sure, ask your mate. All right? And they'll give you this. Yep, that's you. All right? Number one, you have some questions about why God allows so much injustice. You'd like him to explain why. Number, look at number three. Maybe you're a person, you hear people complain, your ears are in tune to it, and you recognize it. And maybe it bugs you. At work, you hear people griping about the boss. The boss is an idiot. He doesn't know what he's doing. Maybe you don't sound like that, but that's the way way I sound, all right? Don't know what he's doing. Maybe you've been a person, you see that, you've been even, you've even spoken up. So, yeah, you shouldn't complain like that. How about this? Are you perpetually late? Are you perpetually late? Or maybe you're the next one. Others make you late. You're late, but it's everybody else that makes you late. And then nine, this is the tricky one. You become a different person when you get behind the wheel. Now, you might say, but Brian, nobody can drive. All right? Nobody can drive. You know, I have a, a friend that I went to seminary with. Uh, he did become a different person behind the wheel. And he knew he was not allowed to flip somebody off. So he invented something new. It's called the turkey. So right here it is. This is the turkey. You give people the turkey. All right. My mother, my mother was old school. So I never saw her do this, but my sister, my oldest sister told me that once in a while when someone would cut my mom off, she'd give him the lady finger. This was, it was this finger. All right. Now you may say, well, what does it have to do with me? Where am I? You know, The reality is that guys like Jeff Foxworthy have made a fortune making people laugh when they saw themselves as rednecks. Even, you know, some of his uh, most well-attended concerts are not in rural America. They're in the heart of the city because people can identify. Can you identify with some of these things? And basically, can you identify with verse 2 Are you standing in the wings watching Jesus, watching the church, and under your breath, you are grumbling? See, what goes on in the latter part of this story, why this older son is skipped over, is because it gets real close to home with those who seek to be faithful. The older son does not understand the father either. The younger son heads out to a far country because he wants freedom and he doesn't think dad could possibly know what fun looks like. The older son, he doesn't understand the father either. He believes the father is to be feared. The father is to be obeyed. God is not one that you should mess with. And more than anything... Some of us look at God, and if in the quiet of the night, in the quiet of our desperation, we're just simply saying, 
this is not fair. Life does not feel fair to you. See, you and I have this thing, if you've been a part of church for any amount of time, if you claim Christ, the reality is, is right now in this room today, you can be faithful, you've been tithing, you can be making sacrifices, you can claim Christ, you can read your Bible, you can know all the insights that you believe you need to know, but the reality is you can be doing all the right things and you can be out of fellowship with God. And see, the focus of the teaching in Luke 15 has been on this son that heads out. But what about the son that stays home and his heart is also in a far country? What's going on in our hearts? What's going on in the heart of the faithful Pharisee? And could you possibly be one? Well, a close examination in my heart would say that I can identify with the older brother. So I'm going to be real transparent here. I've tried to be faithful, like many of you. I seek to obey. I try to live as a Christian, what I think you should live like. I've made monumental mistakes, and I know it. I've made sacrifices. I attend church. I have quiet time daily. I give faithfully. I repent of my sin. I've made hard choices. And one thing that becomes evident, the longer I live as a believer... Just like you, you're going to watch other people make huge messes of their life. Turn to God or not turn to God. And guess what happens? Things just work out. Things just working out. Things just don't seem fair. Things just seem to be okay. I'm gonna give you, I'll give you an example. It's a, uh, we recently went to Japan we have, the church has a relationship with Sakai Bible Church in, um, in Japan, and it was a fantastic and amazing experience. It was wonderful. Well, coming back, well, when you travel to Japan, you know, when you book through a website like Expedia or Travelocity, whatever it may be, you get emails later that says, well, where are you going next? All right? So it gave me two choices. It said, are you more... Myrtle Beach or your Bora Bora, all right? Now, for those of you who don't know where Bora Bora is, Bora Bora is like that hidden place that God has preserved. It's just give you a little glimpse of maybe what heaven might look like, all right? And I looked at that, and I honestly, I thought, you know, I'll be lucky to get to uh, Crittenden this year, all right? <laughs> you know what I mean? We can identify with the older brother, John Piper says, we often find ourselves in the midst of our circumstances, our struggles. We feel a little bit on the outside and looking in saying, hey, what about me? This doesn't seem fair. And this older brother at best, that's what he's experiencing. And this is a struggle of the religious faithful. Maybe you're not that. Maybe it's not quite like that. But the truth is there's deep-seated beliefs that many of us deal with that run contrary to biblical Christianity. They run contrary to a God-glorifying church life. And a little bit of success has caused us to drift off the truth. 
So I want to spend a little time today about what Jesus taught about this oldest son, which confronts hidden things that we have in our heart, things that we all face. So number one is this, the principle one in your outline, I'm going to call this also an insight. The gospel, the gospel is scandalous for it identifies this. Listen carefully. It identifies in this story that there is a, a, a desperate need for grace. Hear this again. Desperate need from grace from God for the flagrant sinner who you may not be. But desperate need for grace for the faithful church member too. We are beggars at the feast. If you are new to church and you sit in this room today and you think, you look across the aisle, you say, I don't have it together like that person. I'm not like these people. That's a lie of the enemy. The people that are sitting in this room, every one of us level around the cross. It's grace at the beginning, grace in the middle, grace at the end, grace, 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 Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It's grace. It's nothing else. I need grace. And the more out of touch with your own sin, whether it's flagrant or hidden, the more out of touch you're going to be with understanding the kingdom of God. And we've got to come to grips with this. It's offensive to us. It's offensive because we see the Father forgive and accept and do in acts of mercy, grace initiated by him and by him alone. That's what he does. We're a rule. We love rules. I like rules. I like, for, I like formulas. Who are the list keepers in this room? Who begins their day daily? Raise your hand. Let's see you. All right. Bob Smith, I see you, brother. That's a, that's a list man. Every day a list. Check, check, check. Thank goodness or we would not have air conditioning this morning. All right. Reality. That's true. List keepers. List keepers don't understand those are flying by the seat of their pants. And the moment that they screw up, guess what we do? Our formula says, if you what? Had a list. Wouldn't have happened. All right. Watching a TV show yesterday with my daughter. This mother says to her son, honey, I know you love your dad. He's fun dad. I used to be fun mom. I'm no longer fun mom because two fun parents makes a carnival and it's crazy. All right. (laughs) This is who we are. But men, especially what we like is we like analysis. We like to say, we like to hear a problem, analyze it. And we'll say, well, this is why this happened. And not far from there, it's this, there are winners and there's losers and winners obey and losers do not. Losers bring shame, they fail, like this younger brother. See, the problem is this. We forget that every grace that we have, everything good that happens, every list that we keep, every accomplishment we have, every dime that we have been given is an act of the mercy and the grace of God. And when you lose touch with that, life's going to look unfair. We get things wrong. We get things wrong in the public. We get things wrong in science. It's amazing how we think science knows, knows. 
Just because it's said, science says that it's just the way it is. And it's amazing. I was in the airport last year, and I was walking through and, and uh, wandered into the bookstore. Anybody see this magazine? Yeah. It's beautiful if you're an eater, if you like to eat. So two years ago, I did an all-out war on my waistline. And one of the things that I was told is get the fat out of your diet. Well, what fun is that? So I wandered in the bookstore, and they must have known this magazine was to sell. There's a whole wall of them. Eat butter. Scientists labeled the fat the enemy. Why they were wrong. We get it wrong. We get our formula wrong. They figure out that the things that God provides, the natural things in moderation, actually help the heart, help the brain work better, help the skin. See, what we like to do is we like formulas. We like to grovel. We like to compare. We like to look and we like to evaluate. But the reality is forgiveness and acceptance is an act of mercy initiated by God, given to sinners like you and like me. And it's all him. In fact, it's all him. What he does is he never consults us. He doesn't consult us. This is beautiful. God does not consult us about his saving act. When the son who has brought shame on the family gets up and comes home, the father does not linger on the porch with a belt. He runs to his son in all the stink and clothes him and loves him and accepts him. He doesn't look, hey, 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 older son, come here, come here. Look what's coming. What do you think we ought to do? You know, we like to be consulted. We like to be consulted where we're going to go eat. Somebody asks you, where you want to go eat, honey? I don't know where you want to go. Well, I tell, as soon as I tell, guess what? I don't, I don't want that. <laughs> but just ask me, at least ask me. There's been more than one argument like that. I heard a guy who told about how he uh, ran every day, the evening from his office. He would run through this warehouse district. And he said every day he ran by this warehouse that had a side of the warehouse that faced the interstate. And the interstate uh, had thousands of cars going by. And on the side of the building in this huge sign, it said, help needed. It's always up there. He thought, can't they hire anybody? Does no one go in there? Or the the work environment so bad that nobody stays. They just keep hiring people. What is it? And he said this. He said, one day I uh, ran by there. And right above the sign, there's a new sign hanging. Just said, no, no help needed. No help needed. And I will tell you, our good father looks at us and he says, I don't need your help. I don't need your help to weigh in. I don't need your opinions. I don't need what you think. Should be or should not be. I have this under control. Your very best is not impressive. The problem is we've made God like us. And the better we are and the more 
success we have, the more impressed we become. And we think God is good and happy when we're up. And God is dissatisfied when we fail. And our lives are just like a roller coaster. The faithful Pharisee loses touch. You know, there is that question that some of the best evangelism materials still have in it. It's that question that begs an honest answer. If you stood before the Lord, you found yourself standing before God. And he says to you, why should I let you into heaven? Why heaven for you? Why? Why should I let you in? See, any, any response that any of us have that says, well, well, God, I've tried to be good. I've tried to do right. I, I go to church. You know, I, I pitch a 20 occasionally in. I don't beat my kids. I'm ethical. I don't lie. I don't cheat on my taxes. I don't do this. I don't do that. See, that's all a comparison factor. We're all looking and comparing. And we think we're going to end up on the good side. But Isaiah 64, 6 says this. The reality is we've got to come to terms that the Bible says that our righteous deeds, our best, are like filthy rags. See, there's but one response. Lord, I have nothing but Jesus. I have nothing but Jesus. He made my sin his. He took it. He paid the price for my sin. You came after me. You saved me. You changed me. It was Jesus in the beginning. It's Jesus in the middle. It's Jesus at the end in anything else than that. If it's something else than that, listen. If it's anything other than Jesus, I'll be in hell. See, Elise Fitzpatrick and Dennis Johnson, they said that what we find is that we are one in three camps. We're one of the three. The happy moralist is that person who basically looks at their life. They look in the mirror and say, I'm a pretty good person. You know what? Since God is love, God must love me. He loves everybody, doesn't he? Why shouldn't he? I'm a good guy. I try to do what's right. That's the happy moralist. Then there's the sad moralist. The sad moralist is the person that says, well, I try to do right, but I can't ever get it right. And obviously my messes are mine. I'm weak. I fail. How could God possibly love me? I'm a mess. What's wrong with me? They constantly criticize themselves and they criticize other people as well. They compare themselves and they say, why that is good? Why me? You know, oh, it's me. And then there's a third It's called the amazed believer. And the amazed believer looks at their life and says, I'm amazed every day how God's love found me, is changing me, and is making me right with him. My life is not my own. I've been bought with a price. I am his. It's an amazing thing that God has done. 
See, the younger brother was confident and self-centered. My father loves me. Surely he'll settle the estate, give me the money, I can head out. I know how to run my life, I want to run my life. So that's what he does. The older brother, however, is focused on what he must do. Now listen, the faithful Pharisee, even though you'd never call yourself that, they're focused on this. What must I do to make God happy? And may God reward me. That's what the focus is. Is on the reward. It's not on the relationship. He basically says, all these years. Look in verse 28 and 29. He says to his father, look, all these years I've served you. It's not sufficient in the ESV. The right word is I have been a slave Some of that, some of you feel that way. You feel your life circumstances have made you a slave. I've done and done and done. These words betrayed what's going on in this guy's heart. And that's what happens. Our heart eventually becomes evident. It comes out. It comes out that we basically serve God for what he's going to do for us. And we got to be careful. The longer you're in church, the more you seek to be faithful. We've got to maintain the ultimate balance. And the balance is, I need grace today, I need grace tomorrow, and I need grace the day I die. I need grace. And if I need grace, my friend needs grace. My brother needs grace. Insight number two, the father never changes. He pursues relationship regardless of where you are. You may say, Brian, you don't know the mess I've made. I don't need to. The father does. And he comes out. Verse 28, both sons. The amazing thing is he comes out and he entreats him. He calls him in. See, the distant country the the younger son finds himself in is geography and heart. The older son is just heart. We find our, our way there. But the father comes out and he entreats him. This is a good indication that Jesus is a lot like me. It's amazing what happens when we have family dinners, big family dinners, how everybody's coming in. You put a whole bunch of ordinary people together. And you have this picture in your mind of how grand and glorious it's going to be. And it doesn't take long for you to figure out that some people's not bearing their load. Some people, you're supposed to show up with a dish. They show, show up with a cup full of coffee for themselves. And we don't like it. We don't say anything. We just moan in the heart. And, you know, some, some of you have experienced this. You have these family experiences and somebody doesn't come in because they're mad because so-and-so looked at me this way. Now, if it's Brian Fannin running that show, this is what I do. Let him stay up there. I don't have time for that kind of attitude. Maybe he'll learn something. That's shameful because that's not my father's heart. My heavenly father comes out. It's amazing how the father is always so much more mature and wise than we are. 
And he comes out and he entreats him. And in the English, we don't quite get all that's here, but there are amazing things here. For instance, he uses this word, he pleads with him. It's the same word, the same Greek word where we get paraclete, which is the Holy Spirit's work. He begs him, come, son. In fact, we see in, 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 the, in the passage, we, we see the father looking at him and in the English it says, son, you know, it's appropriate that we do this, but that's not the way it is in the Greek. In the Greek, it's words that basically says this, my boy, my son, my boy, you're not seeing this thing the way it is, the way we really need to see this. You're not seeing the whole picture. Don't be misguided. The father comes out. He calls us to be reconciled. He calls to your heart and he calls to your head. He calls you to reason and appeal to you. And he reminds him that all that he has is his. Now remember this. This is the son that stayed home. This is the son that went to the field every day. This is the son that did not bring shame on his family. This is the son that's working. He's doing all the right things. And all the right things do not spell all the right things for him. And some of you know what that's like. Some of you know what it's like to go to a thankless job and come home only to find your child sick. And not only a little sick, but desperately sick. And you call the doctor and the doctor says, oh, you know, we saw him last week. Everything's fine. Yeah, they just take them a little bit longer and you wait and you watch them suffer. And they stay up all night vomiting and then they're lifeless in your body and your arms, not very responsive. And only to rush them to the hospital and find out that your child is desperately ill. And then you call in and your boss says, you're not coming in? When the bills come, you look around you and you watch people write checks like that. Who you know. You know. They're not seeking to live faithful like you. You've done everything you can with your child Your son or your daughter says, I don't believe what you believe. See, we have this tendency to really believe that God doesn't do things like what he did here. Where he clothes the naked and covers the shame. While we feel on the outside looking in. And the amazing thing about this story story is this. There's a party going on. The father comes out. There's a place at the table set for the younger son. The older son's outside. The father comes out, talks to him. Do you see what happens? The story just ends. There's no resolution. It ends abruptly. The father says it's fitting story just ends. We don't see what he, the son does. The older faithful son, we don't see what he does. 
It's with purpose. What is going to happen? This is the question that we must ask ourselves. Is there any bit of self-righteousness in you? Will you refuse to come in? Or you will just stay outside grumbling? Now, you may be sitting in the room, but you stay out grumbling. Quickly, number three. The tragedy of the human condition, and this is wrong in your bulletin, but it's right on the screen. It just shows our weakness. We can't get it right in the bulletin. All right? The tragedy of our human condition is that our self-perceived righteousness, that is actually the thing that stands in our way and keeps us from God. Wayne Dyer wrote a book years ago, huge bestseller. I'm okay, you're okay. Everybody's okay. Everybody's got it together, just different ways. Paul Tripp says, sin lives in a costume. That's why it's hard to recognize. Life in a fallen world is like the ultimate masquerade party. Impatient yelling wears the costume of zeal for truth. Craving for power and control wears the mask of biblical leadership. The pride of always being right masquerades as the love for biblical wisdom. We're all very committed and gifted self-swindlers. And no one's more influential in their own lives than they themselves. Because no one talks to them more than they themselves do. We're all too skilled at looking at our own wrong and seeing good. We're all much better at seeing the sin, weakness, and failure of others than we are our own sin. Sin causes us not to hear or see ourselves with accuracy. And we not only tend to be blind, but to compound matters, we also tend to be blind to our blindness. Every week, my father took me to church. Every week. We went almost every Wednesday night too. I went to Sunday school, I went to church, went to youth group when I was made, but I went. At school, I was known as a believer and I professed to know Jesus. But the reality is, I was lost in plain sight. I am firmly convinced that it's much easier when you know that you're a sinner and you've made a mess of your life and your only hope is Jesus to come to Jesus. Then the person who follows a formula, life pretty much works out okay for you. You're a pretty good guy. People like you. The righteous follow a formula and they don't come in. And I will tell you, you can be lost in plain sight. We need to learn to repent of more than our sins. You and I, one of the best things we can learn to do is repent of the things that we call righteous that's not. Repent of our self-righteousness. Milton Vincent says this, you know, believers go around professing, people go around professing. Why doesn't God just show up? Why doesn't, if it's Jesus, why doesn't he just have a conversation with us? Let's just talk. I'd like to talk to him about why so much injustice, why decision after decision makes absolutely no sense, why the culture seems amok. Why does it just keep happening? Why? 
Well, Vincent says that we're probably not going to much like the answer. Because he's not going to talk to us about those things. He's going to talk to you about your heart. And he says the reality is, is that we want God to do what we want him to do. And if he's not, just go die. We, you want to know what we do with Jesus? We kill him. That's what we do. The reason why you shout him down in your life is because you don't want to know his claim for your life. I don't either. See, we want what we think is fair and good as long as what? As long as it benefits me. That's what we want. And the faithful Pharisee has to come to grips with this. We need our eyes opened and come into the party. That we need grace just like everybody else needs. Principle number four, quickly. The gospel is not fair. And I'm so glad it's not fair. Aren't you glad it's not fair? If it was fair, I would have gotten death and hell. But God empties heaven of its greatest resource to save me and to save you. That's what he does. Don't miss this. Of all the things in this story, both sons, grace is offensive. The only way to be right is by humbling yourself. The older son should have seen what it cost the father to make the son right. He should have said, dad, I'll go find him. I'll go bring him home. I'll care. I'll do it. But no, he's working an equation for his good. Only the humble. We need to see what it cost us to bring us home. So real practical. Here's what I'd like you to encourage you to do. First, this. If you have any tendency to be a faithful Pharisee, even though you may not call yourself that, but you're faithful and you try to do what's right, Look at yourself, first confess and repent of a grumbling heart about the hand you're dealt and the hand that others are dealt. Come to terms with the most pervasive, deepest problem is really us. Be open and transparent. Move toward people. Move toward the Father. Come into the party. Move toward people. The older son doesn't even call his brother his brother anymore. He said, this, this son of yours. That's what we do. We look at other people, we judge them, we point at them. There's a fix for that. Move toward people. Small group pastor, here's my plug. For the love of Mike, get in a small group. It'll put a dent in your universe. It will change the way you see people. There'll be people just like you with broken pieces laying all around them, just like you, who will help you pick them up and put them back together and in grace move forward. But we sometimes lose, we get hurt, we know. You know why we get hurt? Because we're surrounded by sinners just like you, just like me. Celebrate your Savior. But we lose touch and we pursue other things and we just float along. 
1165, the Roman emperor Frederick, he is said to have been reviewing the accounts of the deaths of previous emperors and the directions given. And Frederick is said to have been told that Charlemagne in 813 was, gave instructions that he wanted to be entombed upright, sitting on a throne with a scepter in his hand. So because emperors can do this kind of thing, Frederick wanted to see. So he had the tomb opened. And there sat Charlemagne, sitting upright, the scepter in his hand, and a finger on a scroll. Pointing at Mark eight thirty six, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Don't forfeit your soul. Would you stand with me, please? Father, it's our prayer that you be merciful and gracious to us who've been faithful, who've tried to pursue, and we don't always understand. We don't understand what's going on about us. We know you're at work, and we need to see the truth that you draw us in, you call us in. You love us. You have a tender word for us. You see us too. And we pray to celebrate the redemption that's ours in Jesus Christ. And God's people said, amen.